Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name's Trish Greenhush. Um, thank you for inviting me to give this talk today, and I'm very sorry I can't be with you in person. I think you may have been told what's happened is that I've recently had a big operation on my neck, and I'm not allowed to travel very much at the moment. But hopefully at the end of this pre-recorded lecture, I'll be available in person via Skype to take some questions and respond to your comments. Before I start, I'd like to acknowledge the input of many, many people, patients, research participants, and both clinical and academic colleagues, too numerous to mention individually. But uh, this is a piece of work which has been going for nearly 20 years now, and it couldn't have happened without the very enthusiastic and committed participation of a very large number of people. What I'm going to talk to you about today is framing the patient as a storyteller, but also framing the story as a form of self-management, uh, which, is, which is a slightly unconventional way of looking at things. So hope you'll bear with me. I'm going to tell you about a study that has a quantitative randomised trial component, as well as quite a big qualitative component. Well, let's start by talking about stories. In every human society, people tell stories. There's never been a human society discovered anywhere in the world where people don't tell stories to one another. Jerome Brunner is one of the greatest academics on the subject of storytelling. Uh, last heard of still alive and still teaching at the age of about 99. Um, he trained as a psychologist at a time when psychology was uh, very weighed down by behaviourism, by, by things like stimulus and response. And he was convinced that psychology was much more about the creation of meaning. And he wrote this book, which I would strongly recommend that you buy if you're interested in narrative. It's called Acts of Meaning. It's very short, very readable. And it talks about the narrative structure of experience and the purpose of narrative as making meaning in our world. Stories, as I'm sure you'll all remember from your childhood, tell us about adventure and risk, about good and evil, about trust and fear, about joy and sorrow. And they tell us about human virtues, such as courage, loyalty, humility and honesty. Stories reveal the unwritten rules that make up culture, whether it's the culture of a whole society or of a school, a workplace, perhaps a church. Uh, and until you've picked up those unwritten rules, you don't really know how to behave in that particular culture. But once you've picked up the rules through stories, uh, you become uh, able to, to, to sort of m merge in with that culture. Interestingly, there's some, some research uh, that demonstrates that the story is the unit of learning, the way we gather experience, and above all, the way we find out what to do in particular situations. Now, one of the greatest writers on narrative was Aristotle, who lived many hundreds of years BC, as I'm sure you all know. Uh, and what Aristotle said was that uh, stories are defined by five things. They have a chronology, that is, unfolding over time. They have characters. They have a setting. They also have trouble. Um, there's, so, there's always some trouble in a story. If, if nothing troublesome happens, we don't tend to tell about it. But if something happens, uh, you know, you drive to work and you don't tell your partner about it. If you drive to work and 
nearly run over a dog. You phone up your partner and tell them what the trouble was and how you managed to get out of the trouble. Um, and stories also have plot. And what plot is, is the juxtaposition of events and actions uh, through linguistic devices, such as uh, repetition or metaphor, uh, in order to depict causality. So the plot arranges the people and the events and the setting in such a way as to imply that uh, certain things might have caused certain other things. And it's this implotment that is very characteristic of the story form. Now, let me move on to something else. Chronic illness. Uh, as I personally know very uh, uh, very much at the moment, having an illness, uh, living with chronic illness is hard work. Uh, and there's a lot of work been done recently by people about the burden of having uh, an illness. Carl May talks about the burden of treatment, for example. Um, now, a few years ago, and it must be 20 years ago that this started, um, I did a piece of work along with Cecil Hellman and uh, a Bangladeshi colleague, Mumin Chowdhury, uh, where Mumin went and interviewed 40 Bangladeshi people with diabetes. And he also interviewed uh, a number of people who weren't Bangladeshi, mostly white and Afro-Caribbean. Um, they weren't really controls, but sort of comparisons. Um, and he found in the Bangladeshis in particular that... Uh, people he interviewed uh, could recall advice given them by the doctor or the dietitian or the nurse, and they greatly valued and respected that advice, but it didn't change their behaviour. It was never linked in a personal story to a change in behaviour. But what did change their behaviour was a story that they heard from another Bangladeshi person. Uh, and this was very striking. In pages and pages of transcripts of uh, interviews translated... Uh, there wasn't a single instance of advice given by a health professional that changed behaviour, but in almost every transcript there was a story told by another Bangladeshi that was linked to a change in behaviour. And these are direct quotes from that data set, which as I say is now heard about a man who smoked and he had his leg cut off, I gave up smoking. I heard about a woman who kept finishing off the food, the children left. She got very fat, so I started to measure the portions of my food. And you can see here this direct link between a story heard rather diffusely. You know, this is almost overhearing gossip. This isn't a story told by anyone particularly important, just a story heard in the vernacular, and therefore I changed my behaviour. Well, after finding that, I think quite an important uh, discovery, it's probably one of the most significant things that my team have, have ever discovered in, in the kind of research that I do, um, I got rather distracted into action research, developing um, story sharing groups with not just the Bangladeshi community, that's where we started, but uh, as I said before, the um, the phenomenon of storytelling is is is, is, is um, universal in human societies. So we worked with a lot of different uh, ethnic groups and also with white British groups um, developing these story sharing groups. And one of the things that took the time in this action research was developing a sort of training program for bilingual health advocates to support the story sharing intervention. Because um, it's not a question of telling them stories, it's a question of inviting them to tell stories to one another. We already know if we tell the stories as professionals, it doesn't work. So we trained facilitators 
who ran groups in a lot of different ethnic languages. This is a slightly out-of-date slide because we've done them in other uh, languages with other ethnic groups since, um, particularly recently Turkish and Polish. Um, and these groups were a lot of fun. I've sat in and on many of these groups and they you know, meet once a fortnight and, and people tell stories about managing their diabetes. So what is the sharing stories model? Because you can frame this as a complex intervention where you have to define exactly what the model is. And the model consists of three things. The first thing is spontaneous, informal, unstructured story sharing. People are allowed to tell whatever stories they want about their diabetes in whatever order with no rules about what's important or what's legitimate. Um, secondly, there is non-directive facilitation by a bilingual health advocate or by a lay volunteer who is trained in the story sharing model. So this is not a professionally led intervention. And thirdly, the input of clinical professionals, because we clinical professionals are allowed to come if we get invited by the group, um, must be as a response to the stories that are shared by the group participants, not a standard spiel. Uh, I remember sitting in a group once, for example, where a podiatrist had come along to talk about foot care and she had brought some PowerPoint slides and some flashcards and the group uh, didn't want to see these uh, uh, prepared uh, educational materials because they'd been talking in the previous group about how expensive it was to buy special diabetes recommended footwear and they wanted the podiatrist to respond to their complaint that, that uh, these shoes were too expensive for them to buy. They already knew what kind of shoes they should buy, they just couldn't afford to buy them. Uh, and that's an example of how when the patients and the participants are setting the agenda, you get a very different kind of discussion, but also those stories are uh, very important, very relevant to people's lives, and they do tell you why people are not following the advice that they're given. So here's a flowchart for the randomised controlled trial that we did a few years ago. We took uh, a population of people who were referred for diabetes education and before they uh, had their diabetes education we phoned them up and invited them would they like to be in a randomised trial where they would either have uh, group storage sharing or they would go into standard education which was nurse-led. It was a sort of Desmond type uh, intervention if you know that uh, that uh, particular type of diabetes education and the person would have their own personal interpreter if there wasn't a standard education group in a language that they felt comfortable speaking. Um, and those groups ran for six months. We then assessed the uh, participants again. I'll tell you what uh, things we measured on the next slide. And then we left them six months again after the end of the group and did some more uh, tests, both sort of biochemical, physiological and psychometric. So we ended up with two data sets, a quantitative data set and a qualitative data set. In the quantitative data set we measured, uh, among other things, uh, the, the list of things on the left, uh, which I'll, I'll go through later, but it's essentially sort of measures of diabetic control, measures of attendance and measures of outcome such as um, body mass index uh, and also two psychometric scales, quality of life and John Howey's patient enablement scale which if you know it's very short, uh, very um, psychometrically very robust, it asks questions like, as a result of this intervention, are you more confident in managing your illness? And three other similar questions. Um, but we also 
had a qualitative data set which was approximately 300 stories that had been shared spontaneously in these story sharing groups and which had been captured via naturalistic methods by an anthropologist who was sitting in or uh, someone who was uh, working as an anthropologist. I'm not sure they were, they were all qualified anthropologists. Now, some of these were um, bilingual, but many of them weren't. And in fact, our, our main anthropologist uh, didn't speak any of these languages, but would um, the stories would be translated uh, by the bilingual health advocate as part of the discussion. And the way that worked uh, very often was someone who had a very um, a story that they really wanted to be captured in the research uh, would um, invite the health advocate to translate it. Please, please translate my story. This is very important. I'd like the researcher to write it down. Uh, obviously, there were other stories which people either didn't want to write down or, or didn't mind, and, and so they didn't get captured. But we certainly had uh, a data set of, of uh, plenty of stories that, that were captured. Let me talk, first of all, about how we analyse the qualitative data. We analyse them in two ways, both thematically and narratively. The thematic analysis, uh, where we were treating the story really as a collection of data fragments. We went through, and, and many of you will have done this, um, I tend to do it manually with, with um, highlighter pens, but you can use qualitative software if you're, if you're software inclined. Um, and you go through coding different sections of text. So you have a pink coder and you might sort of colour in things where they're talking about exercise or whatever it might be, and you might use a different colour for a different, um, a different theme. That's... Uh, the way I do thematic analysis, and looking for keywords, looking for um, all sorts of uh, themes that come up and also themes that you weren't expecting but you, you've noticed. Now, I would say that thematic analysis is essentially deconstructive because you're taking the story and you're deconstructing it into little bits um, which are, um, you know, sorting it out into themes. Let me tell you a bit more about the narrative analysis, because you may not have met this before, although possibly some of you have. With a narrative analysis, what we're doing is we're looking at the story as a piece of literature, uh, not as something to be deconstructed into themes. So we're interested in the story as a whole, and we're interested in analysing it for its literary features, as defined initially by Aristotle, including things like um, scene setting, what setting is being depicted, characterization, who's being depicted as the hero here, who's being depicted as the villain, um, the implotment, what literary devices are being used to convey um, narrative causality, and so on. But also, um, we're analysing the narrative, not just as a thing, as a text, but also as a piece of drama to consider how the story is conveyed to the audience. Um, let me give you an example. It, we, we held a lot of these groups in, in rooms that, that had um, chairs around a low table, like a coffee table. And sometimes um, participants would stand on the table when they had a, a story that they really wanted to tell um, and they, they, they felt very strongly about. And I remember being in one group where a woman had received a letter from a doctor which had made her rather cross and she stood on the table and waved the letter around and then passed the letter around 
to all the participants in the group so they could all have a look at uh, whatever it was that she was cross about in the letter. And that's what I mean by considering how the story is conveyed um, and also how the audience reacts. Were the audience equally angry or were they? could they not understand why she was cross? Uh, so uh, that would I would call um, a Bactinian framing of, of the of the narrative, in other words, uh, looking at the interaction between speaker and audience. Now, I would say that the narrative analysis, as I've explained it here, and I, I'm only giving you the very bare bones of this, uh, is an essentially constructive analytic method. In other words, you're, you're getting quite a lot out of the narrative as well as what is in the text, because you're also looking at, at uh, how the story is being told and how it's being reacted to. Okay, so the narrative analysis was, was a lot of fun and it took us quite a long time. Um, let me now give you a, a very broad brush uh, summary of the quantitative data. And in, in broad brush terms, nothing changed. Compared to participants in standard education, those randomised to the story-sharing groups um, were better attended, actually, much better attended. So 79% of uh, group sessions were attended compared to 35%. Uh, and attending the groups was associated with better enablement scores. As I've said, this is a subjective measure of confidence in managing one's illness. Uh, but there was absolutely no change in any of the physical or biochemical outcomes, such as HbA1c, weight, cardiovascular risk score. Uh, and that is very often what people find when they do educational programs in diabetes. These, these parameters are very, very difficult to shift. So in summary... People felt better, they enjoyed the groups, they were very keen to come to them, uh, but they didn't actually do any better. And um, so this was, in, in that sense, a negative trial. But let me tell you a bit more about the qualitative data. It, the narrative analysis revealed eight underlying storylines. I should say the thematic analysis revealed um, all the things that people talk about when they talk about their diabetes. You know, they, they revealed... Uh, concerns about their weight, concerns about um, diet, concerns about foot care, concerns about the things the doctor had said, etc, etc. But the most interesting bit about the, um, the study was the underlying storylines within which all those themes uh, began to make sense. So the first storyline was something I've called entering the kingdom of the sick. And I'm taking that, uh, that metaphor from Susan Sontag. She says everyone uh, is a member of two kingdoms at, at certain times in their lives, the kingdom of the well and the kingdom of the sick. Uh, and as you can see from this quote, um, people on being diagnosed with diabetes really feel terrified, um, devastated, this is something awful, it's incurable, uh, and uh, a, a great sense of foreboding, a great sense that, that things are never going to be the same again. Now, every single group that we've ever held, and we've been holding these groups now for about 15 years, spontaneously everybody in the group goes around and, and tells a sort of confessional tale of what happened when they were diagnosed. And we don't make them do this. The facilitators don't make them do it. It just seems that that's how it all starts. Here's my story about how I was diagnosed. The second storyline is a bit more positive, And not everybody tells this story, but 
in every group that I've ever sat in, somebody um, saves the day by coming up with the second storyline, which is to say, wait a minute, it's not so bad. Um, you can actually rebuild your identity. Uh, and this is coming from uh, work by um, Anselm Strauss, who talked about chronic illness as biographical disruption, spoiled identity. Um, and this particular quote is from a woman who's diabetic herself, but uh, is talking about her mother, who's also diabetic and was initially based in Saudi Arabia when the diagnosis was made. And, and she stayed indoors watching the TV and eating and generally not being very well and rather making herself worse. Uh, um, but then she went back to Somalia, where she um, that's where she lived. And somehow lifestyle was a bit different there. She had to do a lot of walking to visit her sisters who lived several miles away. Um, and she began to eat less and lost weight and became happier. And the reason why I've picked that quote is that it really encapsulates uh, the core storyline of identity rebuilding in diabetes. And this recurred again and again across many different groups. Um, and the storyline is from being indoors in, inactive and introspective and feeling rather sorry for yourself having been diagnosed to being out of the house active and linking with others um, and one of the great things about some of these groups is shifting people from being stuck in storyline one to being able to to get going on storyline two the third storyline i've called becoming a practitioner of self-management uh, those of you who know the work of uh, Etienne Wenger and Jean Lave on communities of practice will know what I mean when I talk about becoming a practitioner. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about uh, learning to play the piano or sailing or um, becoming a parent or any of these things. You, these are things that you have to learn through a community by, by picking up stories from people who can do it well and by following what they're doing uh, and gradually sort of immersing your identity into this community of practice. And I've given you a little story here of, of a group that I sat in, it was an Afro-Caribbean group, they were telling their stories in English fortunately so I could follow them. Um, and this was a gentleman who he was the only man in the group, as I recall, and there were a lot of uh, Afro-Caribbean women in the group who would talk about their shopping and their cooking. And this chap's wife had recently died and she'd been doing all the cooking and the shopping. And gradually, over the space of, of 12 group sessions, he began to pick up what they were talking about and he one day came in very proudly and told his story about how he'd been to the market and bought these vegetables and gone back and cooked them just as they'd told him to and he had begun to get going in in this practice of healthy eating rather than eating sort of junk food and out of tins uh, so that was that's becoming a practitioner the fourth storyline um, I've called living a disciplined and balanced life and this storyline was very nested in religious um, metaphors and religious justification. Um, and I've given you an example of a group that I was in, which was a Muslim group. I think it was Bangladeshi, um, where one group member had said, oh, I'm going to die anyway, so why bother doing all these um, tests? Why bother following a healthy life? And this drew very strong criticism from the other members of the group 
who saw great religious value in taking care of one's own diabetes and achieving balance, that there is nothing in the Islam religion and certainly um, nothing in, in any of the great religions that say that you should really just sit there and let the diabetes take over you. And uh, I was really very interested in in the fact that professionals sometimes have a, a sort of rather negative view of Islam um, whereas actually the more people I talked to in the east end of London, uh, the more they, they, they confirmed the, what I'd seen happening in the group, which was actually the Quran or the, the Islam religion it is very, very focused on these things like balance, self-restraint, looking after the body and following a set of rituals. And uh, I was raised in, in, in the Christian religion and I could say exactly the same thing. I remember my mother talking to me about balance and not being excessive and making sure that you had your bath before you went to church and all that kind of thing. Similarly, for the Jewish, the Sikh religion, this is uh, very much aligned with the kind of self-care behaviours that uh, one uh, would recommend in diabetes. Uh, I actually did a study with uh, a dietitian called Claire Grace uh, where we explored this in great detail with Bangladeshi religious leaders. So this is sort of an aside to the to the main piece of work I'm telling you about, that we did focus groups within the uh, East London Mosque of Bangladeshi religious leaders, both the male imams and also uh, female religious leaders, who uh, had another title that I can't remember, um, and PhD scholars and, and, and senior Islamic scholars, and they confirmed absolutely the strong alignment of the teachings of the Quran with diabetes self-management behaviours. Uh, but we also did focus groups of, of doctors and nurses and dietitians who were all rather negative and stereotypical about uh, about Muslims and, and said it's all those imams, it's all those religious leaders telling people to sit around and not take exercise. Um, and, and this was simply not the case. So in fact, it was the nationals who needed educating uh, rather than um, rather than the, the, the imams. Um, the fifth storyline that came up in our uh, story sharing project was what I've called mobilising a care network. Um, anyone who's been ill knows how important it is to be able to pick up the phone and ask a friend or a relative to uh, come around and help in some way. Uh, people who live alone, people who don't have many friends or don't have the kind of friends that are capable of coming around and helping um, and also helping educate are going to do worse. Um, and this is a quote from some poor lady who really didn't have anyone to help look after her or help advise her. Whereas many of the participants in our groups uh, were, were quite active in helping other people and, and the ability to mobilise a care network uh, was another storyline in, uh, in our data set. Uh, the sixth storyline I've called Navigating and Negotiating in the Healthcare System. Uh, where it's partly about gaining access to care, but also once you've got your place in the GP surgery or in, in, the, in front of the diabetes nurse or whatever, to actually be able to put your case and defend what you're doing, uh, perhaps in the face of a, of a health professional who's, who's um, telling you you're doing something else or, or disagreeing with you. Um, so, and, and I would also put in here managing conflicts. Uh, so that came up quite a lot in some of the groups. The seventh storyline I've called Managing the Micro-Morality of Lifestyle Choices. So the stories that we heard often contained examples of 
small-scale ethical choices such as how to spend a limited family income. Should I do X, which will have these consequences, or should I do Y, which will have those consequences? Uh, should I spend some money on buying the kind of vegetables that I'm supposed to eat for my diabetes, but which the rest of the family don't eat because they don't like? Or should I give the money to my daughter to buy a new pair of shoes for her son? Now, very often, the behaviours of uh, the people in our groups made complete sense once we nested them within these ethical frameworks within the, uh, the, the, um, within their own personal lives, uh, the everyday ethics of lifestyle choices. Um, of course, they don't make sense if you simply say, well, you must attend all your appointments. But if you're not attending because you, you're looking after an elderly relative at home and you're really struggling because no one else can help you, then, of course, it makes ethical sense. And finally, uh, storyline eight, taking collective action. Now, this isn't a story that was told in the group. This was a story that was enacted by one particular group. This was a, a Bangladeshi group of women. Um, and they got very excited about the idea of going swimming because they, they, they got very keen on exercise. And some of them were going walking, but some of them wanted to go swimming. So they campaigned for women-only swimming sessions at the local pool. And the council uh, offered the sessions once a week, every Wednesday afternoon. You can have two hours, women-only. Uh, but only then they realised that they didn't have any swimsuits to wear because with the particular form of Islam that they followed, even if it was women only, they had to be covered from head to foot. Um, and so they didn't turn up to the sessions and the council were rather cross initially. Um, but we found out that what they'd done is they'd got together as part of the group and a couple of them had sewing machines. And so they got some material and they made themselves lovely long swimming dresses. And once they'd made the dresses, then they turned up and went swimming. Now, the reason I like that is that it's an example of, um, if you like, narrative drama rather than just narrative as, as a told tale. They're, they're living it as it, as it uh, in, in the sort of forward unfolding, as well as looking back and telling a retrospective narrative. So let me summarise. Um, the eight storylines that we um, uncovered in this um, in this study, and I've given you the names of the sort of um, the theorists who've written about these, but I won't read them all out. Um, entering the kingdom of the sick, rebuilding spoiled identity, becoming a practitioner of self-management, living a disciplined and balanced life, mobilizing a care network, navigating and negotiating in the healthcare system, managing the micro-morality of self-care choices, and taking collective action. And uh, those of you who are sort of familiar with any of these names might want to challenge me about, uh, you know, which and who I should have written against each of those. But you can see the, the, the way the storylines uh, add a lot of richness to what was going on in these groups. So let me summarise. The seven, the, the thematic analysis, which I've given you the results of on the left, revealed the seven practical issues which are covered by the expert patient programme and which pretty much everybody finds when they do research into um, self-management in diabetes. But the eight storylines on the right are things that other people haven't found before. And I think what this study adds is that the storylines give the practical issues two things. 
They give them social meaning and they give them moral worth. And hence, the storylines are the mechanisms by which self-management comes to make sense for the person. So here's my hypothesis. And I'm using these pictures um, from the American Association for Diabetes Education. But you can see we, in the UK, we have very similar lists of things that people with diabetes should be doing to look after themselves. My hypothesis is that without story, these self-management behaviours have no meaning. Uh, and we might go right back to the 1930s, where the young Jerome Brunner was, was looking at the sort of stimulus response psychology of the day and saying, no, we've got to make this all have a bit more meaning. So here's my conclusion from what we, what we discovered in, in the Sharing Stories project, that story work converts self-care behaviours to acts of meaning. So what are the next steps? Because in the end, as I say, this was a randomised trial and, and it was a negative trial in that, that nobody's diabetes actually became better controlled. And I think the reason was that we were very interested in the story sharing. But the thing we didn't do was we didn't align it with individual clinical care planning, the self-care behaviour component. So at some stage, um, when I've finished all the other research studies that I've currently got funding for, I'm very keen to do a cluster randomised controlled trial to compare uh, two groups, both of which would have the story sharing intervention, one of whom would have standard care planning, but the other would have enhanced care planning from someone who would be sitting in hearing these stories and then taking people aside individually afterwards and saying, now, the story you told, um, you know, suggested this, this and this, perhaps we'd like to really tighten up on, on your personal care plan in this particular area. Uh, but that's something that we haven't yet done, but I'd be very interested in your comments on this. So thank you for your attention and for your questions. And I very much hope the technology is now going to work for me to beam in and listen to your comments and hear your questions. So thank you for your attention.